even if you have incredible cover, there's been some studies that show that whenever you apply all the pressure, all the hunting pressure to those areas of refuge, you can change those deer's behavior, those deer behavior where they then leave those areas of cover. So, so it is just like you spoke to, you know, you want this concealment cover, but you also got to limit that pressure, even in those areas of refuge, because they will leave, you know, they may leave those areas of refuge or change their patterns and you have to repattern them again. Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and man, it is a great time of year to be a deer hunter. I know for much of the country, we're quickly heading into that that best time of year to be in the field. Uh, For most of us, that best opportunity to cross paths with a mature buck. I just just wrapped up a a three-day public land rifle deer hunt here in Georgia and uh, despite getting my butt kicked by the deer, uh, I was able to get out afterwards, get in some some much needed in-season scouting and was pretty excited about all the sign I was coming across. Um, you know, it's just that time of year starting to see the, those fresh scrapes and fresh rubs are popping up all over, uh, which means those bucks will just steadily be increasing their daily movements, uh, their daylight movements. So. Hopefully you guys are getting some time in the woods. Uh, Hopefully some of you have some vacation scheduled here in the next few weeks. And for those of you in the deep south who, you know, still have a while to wait, hey, just let us enjoy these next few weeks because uh, you guys will be laughing at the rest of us when we've already hung up our guns and bows for the season and and things will just be getting great for you guys. So uh, let, let us have our time. And I'm just uh, just excited about the next few weeks here, as I know a lot of you guys are as well. But hey, well, I'm also excited about this week's podcast because we're going to be talking with uh, Dylan Stewart, who's a master's student at Auburn University, and Dr. Will Goldsby, an associate professor of wildlife ecology and management at Auburn as well, uh, about their research on how habitat types and hunting pressure influence deer movement. So, after if after hearing this episode, you want to read more about this research uh, and see some of the accompanying graphics, uh, we'll be posting an article from these two on our website next week. Uh, if you're listening to this as it comes out, we'll be posting it next week that covers their research in depth. So to make sure you see that, it'd be a good idea to go ahead and head over to our website now at deerassociation.com slash newsletter and sign up for our weekly e-newsletter. That way, you'll stay up to date on all our latest content, whether it be a blog post, a new podcast episode, or an informative YouTube video. Uh, whatever the case, uh, you'll be able to stay up to date with what's going on here at the National Deer Association. So before we get started, though, this week's episode is brought to you by longtime NDA supporters, HHA Sports. Now, HHA is well known for making some of the best archery sites in the business, and and I've been a longtime user of, of HHA sites myself, but they also make some other products as well. They make some great archery rest uh, and some stabilizers. So, And not only do these guys make great products, but hey, they're big supporters of the NDA, uh, just conservation in general, and, and our hunting heritage. These guys, man, they do a lot of great stuff for our veterans. And because of all that, we're extremely proud to be associated with them. Uh, if you're in the market for a new bow site or a rest or a stabilizer, be sure to check those guys out at hhasports.com. Hey, and with that, we have a few things going on right now with the National Deer Association, or, or a couple things anyway. Uh, we've been telling you, you know, every week about our special membership offer for podcast listeners. And that's still going on. You can still take advantage of that. And a lot of you guys have. We we appreciate that support. But uh, you can go to our website again at DeerAssociation.com. Click on that join or renew link right there at the top and use the promo code podcast. And that's going to save you $5 off our annual membership fee. You're going to get a uh, and you're going to get a free NDA cap as well. So be sure to take advantage of that offer. And uh, we also have another special membership offer, a holiday membership offer going on now where for uh, $100, you get an annual NDA membership with, you know, all the standard goodies, your quality whitetails magazine, vehicle decal, and NDA cap. But with this one, you're also going to get a great looking NDA pullover 
and your choice of either black or charcoal gray. So you can learn more about that one at DeerAssociation.com slash holiday membership. And I think uh, that's pretty much it, guys, for now. With that, let's jump on the phone here with Dylan Stewart and Dr. Will Goldsby to talk about some of the things they've learned from the, their research project. All right, guys, I got Dylan Stewart and Dr. Will Goldsby on the line here. Um, guys, how you doing? Doing well. Good, Brian. Good deal. Well, uh, first off, I, I appreciate you guys taking time out here to come on and, and talk some of this deer research with me. Um, and I, this is one I'm really looking forward to. Um, I've always been fascinated with, you know, any of the, this kind of GPS collar research where you kind of get a, a peek into si- peek inside, uh, how these deer are behaving and, and how we as hunters and land managers, uh, can impact that behavior. So, um, now you guys recently wrote an article for our uh, quality whitetails magazine that'll be coming out in the fall issue. And that's kind of where, uh, I got to read that you know, enjoyed it. And that, that got me wanting to get you guys on here to talk a little bit more about that research. So, but before we, before we dive too much into that, uh, let's just kick things off with some introductions here and, uh, Dylan, I'll let you get started with just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what led you down this path to become a, a graduate student there at Auburn, you know, researching deer movement. Yeah. So my name is Dylan Stewart. I am a graduate student here in the school of forestry and wildlife science at Auburn university. Um, I actually am not from the Southeast. I'm originally from Arizona. Down in Arizona, I studied some of the movement and some of the intricate behaviors of desert bighorn sheep um, and mule deer actually down there. So it was, it was a different uh, deer species, but I really, really enjoyed it. And so I, after graduation, I, I looked out for opportunities and I saw this opportunity here with Dr. Will Goldsby. And, and they're really doing amazing research here in the Southeast, in particular, using things like prescribed fire on the, on the ground, you know, in the Southwest, we can't really use fire the same way because of some of the issues with large wildfires. And I mean, everyone's pretty familiar with that in the, in the news. And so I was really interested in getting some hands-on experience with some of these methods and really just Im- improving my skill set. Um, and so I reached out to Dr. Goldsby here and one thing led to another. And here I am studying deer with <laughs> Dr. Goldsby. <laughs> What what kind of, I guess, piqued that initial interest, though, to lead you into a wildlife career? Yeah. Is that just something that's always, you know, appealed to you? Or? It has. Um, I, w- I grew up hunting. Um, we mostly hunted mule deer, and I got to go on a lot of elk hunts, which I really, really enjoyed. It's a little different big game species. We don't quite have the same, I feel like we don't have the same turkey hunting that we do here in the southeast. Um, but mule deer, I can chase them all the time. We have bow seasons that open up most of the year, and it's just, it's really enjoyable. And so, you know, my dad, my brother and I, we go out hunting all the time. We, it's a different way of hunting. You know, it's, it's obviously not where the shots are within 40, 50 yards all the time, but it's more like, you know, if you can shoot out to 500, 600 yards, you can, you can harvest a lot of animals. So it's a different way of hunting, but nonetheless, it was hunting and I, I absolutely enjoyed it. And it really led me to this passion where I knew I wanted to do what I love for the rest of my life. And so I decided I was going to pursue my wildlife degree and someday hopefully uh, make a difference in the field. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, have you got to do much hunting here in uh, or there in Alabama? Or uh, I, I'm guessing that is a uh, was a whole different ball game for you than uh, yeah, what man. You it was were a, describing out there in the Southwest. <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a huge adjustment. Uh, like I said, it's a whole different style from from glassing, you know, and stalking in on an animal and shooting from a long distance. I mean, even with a bow, you know, generally speaking, we got to shoot 70, 80 yards to be successful. So it was a big difference coming down here. I adjusted, you know, my seven pin sight down from up to like, you know, 80, 90 yards down to like 40, 50. <laughs> it's like the max. So unfortunately, I haven't been doing as much hunting as I'd like to. Generally speaking, in the winter breaks, I head off back to my family in Arizona. Um, and so that, that makes it a little tougher for me. But I do like to get out and do a little hunting. I try to do some squirrel hunting and definitely did some deer hunting here when I first got to the southeast. My, my goal is to do a little pig hunting, too, because that's something that's different from what we have in Arizona. So hopefully yeah. I'll get into that here pretty soon. Yeah, you shouldn't have too much problem finding some of those, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, uh, what about you, Will? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what led you to become a, a, a wildlife professor there at Auburn? Yeah, it's kind of a similar story to Dylan's, Brian. I, although I did grow up in the southeast, mostly in Georgia, um, started squirrel hunting at a young age, made the transition over to deer hunting, fell in love with that started out my undergraduate degree as a pre-vet major, decided about halfway through that I really enjoyed the uh, 
the wildlife management side of things a lot more than I did veterinary medicine. So um, started reading everything I could get my hands on. Mostly that was through QDMA. So started reading stuff th- through Quality Deer Management Association. And, um, you know, back then a lot of the articles were by Carl Miller. So I started, you know, looking more into him and then looking into my options as far as graduate school because I didn't want to do another undergraduate degree and applied to work with him as a master's student on a deer project and uh, was successful in getting selected for that position. Completed my master's with him and uh, Bob Warren. We were actually looking at some various ways to try to minimize deer vehicle collisions in Georgia, working with Georgia DOT. And then transitioned into a uh, PhD with Carl after I completed my master's. Um, so did my PhD at UGA, mostly looking at um, the effects of coyote removal on fawn recruitment in central Georgia. So completed that PhD degree in 2014, hung out there for a year as a, as a postdoc research associate before getting hired at Auburn in 2015. So I just uh, closed in on my six-year anniversary here at Auburn. And um, since I've been here, you know, I've had several ongoing deer projects, most of them related to, you know, the main focus of like Dylan's thesis, which is various habitat management practices and their effects on deer forage and cover. Um, Also have done some hardwood management stuff with a former graduate student that's now at University of Tennessee, Mark, uh, Mark Turner, who was on the podcast, I think not too long ago. And, um, you know, Craig Harper at University of Tennessee is involved in that project as well. Um, Craig Harper, Marcus Lashley, University of Florida, Bronson Strickland and I all have an ongoing study looking at the effects of burn season on deer forage and just general vegetation responses. And then I've got, um, you know, some various projects going on related to wild turkeys, waterfowl, and have even done some songbird stuff. You know, most of it, if it, if it has to do with, you know, manipulating forested areas or open areas for wildlife um, to improve, you know, habitat management is something that I'm going to be interested in. But I have done several projects where we use um, the type of data that we're going to be talking about today, which is GPS telemetry data. Um, I've used it not only on deer for that deer vehicle collision project, but I've also used GPS telemetry on coyotes as well. And um, some of the ideas and things that I had seen in that past work is kind of what prompted me and Dylan to start working on the current study that we're going to be talking about today. Cool. It's good to see all these, uh, these Southern universities put their, uh, put their collegiate, uh, football rivalries aside <laughs> and <laughs> work together on, the, oh, on some of these wildlife still, projects. <laughs> we still talk trash about that after hours. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, when push comes to shove, like we realize the power that, you know, comes from working together on a lot of these projects. Absolutely. Well, let, let's dive into uh, this the specific study here that we wanted to you guys to talk about that you were involved in. Now, just just so I understand, this was this was a project that was done earlier, and and Dylan, you, you went back in and, and pulled data from it for for your specific project. Is that yeah? That's is that the way. It went? That's exactly correct. So this research was not directly conducted by us. Um, this is a long term data set that was collected by. Dr. Stephen Ditchkoff here in the Auburn University Deer Lab, some of his colleagues, and then a few of his graduate students. And basically, they looked at different aspects of deer um, behavior during an eight-year period. So it was over a 10-year period, but they, they collected data during eight years of that 10-year period. Um, and so they were looking at different aspects. And so uh, Dr. Stephen Ditchkoff had this data set available that he allowed us to look at and, and basically reanalyze looking at different things. Okay. E- even though you know, you weren't involved in, in the initial project. Can you kind of walk us through um, how that was set up exactly? I mean, what, what, you know, the location and, and how many, how many deer were they following in this case and, and that kind of stuff? Just give us some background. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So basically this data was collected from 2009 through 2018 uh, for eight years of that 10 year period. Um, what they did is they basically went in there and um, they darted, deer and then they collared these deer and during this eight-year period there were 111 deer that were collared um they had a near even sex ratio so near even number of does to bucks um they then tracked their movement or, or they 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 basically got their gps coordinates during that time period um during the hunting season so in south carolina it 
it ran from generally early on in, in the late summer until the late winter. Um, and they, they looked at different things during that time. Yeah. And just to add to what Dylan said, like you mentioned, there was about an even sex ratio of bucks and does in the sample. Um, the average age of does in the sample was four years old. And the average age of bucks in the study was just a, just shy of three years old, which is pretty good for a, a GPS telemetry study. It's hard to get an appreciable number of bucks in that age range with GPS collars on them. Um, but the study area was in Dorchester County, South Carolina, which if you're not familiar with that, um, that's in the lower coastal plain of South Carolina. And uh, it was on a several thousand acre private property that's used as a like a corporate hunting retreat. Going into this project yourself, what I guess what questions were you specifically hoping to answer with this data set? Well, the, the thing that initially appealed to me, Brian, is, well, well, I guess I need to back up further than that. Initially, we wanted to look at some aspects of um, deer use of areas that varied in how recently they had been burned. Um, and Dylan is still pursuing that to some degree, but there were some difficulties in the burn data set that kind of prevented us from being able to do that um, for right now. But like I said, hopefully we will plan to pursue that later. But another question that had been kind of sticking out in my mind for a long time, because I'd had several conversations, you know, around the campfire at hunt camp with, with fellow wildlife biologists and hunters and stuff that I'm sure you have as well, is we all think that, you know, bucks are so much harder to hunt than does. But I always felt like if you went out and, you know, you had a doe that had a unique physical characteristic, you know, maybe like a, um, maybe like a deformed deer or a certain, you know, like a double throat patch or something like that, that you could uniquely identify her. And she was four and a half plus years old, that if you tr tried to hunt that specific deer, it would be just as hard as hunting a unique four and a half year old buck. That's kind of what I had always thought. And I wanted, that was kind of one of the questions that, that drove me on this is to see, you know, whether bucks and does of similar age classes are responding the same to the various cover types in their environments, as well as hunting pressure. Yeah. I, I love how, man, a lot of these studies like this seem to be driven by, you know, basically a, a researcher who's also a hunter, you know, and they're, they're trying to answer those questions themselves. And uh, that, well, that's, that's the great thing about having these, you know, these large GPS data sets. Initially, a lot of times, you know, we're focused on estimating, you know, demography that the state needs to inform management decisions and stuff like that, but they can also be repurposed and give a graduate student like Dylan a chance to work on, cause you know, he's mo mostly doing habitat stuff, but this gives him an opportunity to also get experience with GPS telemetry and to get some deer, you know, animal movement experience, um, in his data analysis skills as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, did they, did they ask the hunters on this area, specifically not to shoot these collar deer or did they tell them just to treat them as any other deer or do, do you know? Yeah. To my knowledge, they asked them to avoid them, but I do know that there were a few that were harvested during the study, the study and they were excluded from the data set. Okay. And what was, give us kind of a, I guess a visual of what the, the habitat type was like in this research area. Yeah. And I, I can speak to that a little bit more. Um, so the first thing we did is we looked at what were the dominant cover types on this study site, right? And we can do that in ArcGIS. It's really easy to overlay a cover type map and see what's going on. And uh, the first thing we noticed that there were four dominant cover types that accounted for 95% of the study area. And the rest of the cover types really made up less than 5%. So you can imagine some of those might be like wetland areas, uh, even things like a lake, perhaps. Those all account in that, in that less than 5% range. So we're really interested in the 95%. What are these four dominant cover types? The four dominant cover types we classified were natural pine, planted pine, hardwoods, and food plots. To give you some visualization or some detail, I guess, on what the natural pine looked like, generally speaking, it averaged over 100 years old. So this is beautiful old loblolly and longleaf pine. And so you can think of like when you're trying to restore, like say areas for RCWs, these really old mature pine forests, just absolutely stunning. Like when we went out there, it was absolutely beautiful. But the understories kept up well. They, they use prescribed fire on generally a two to three year interval. And so the understory is, um, it's, it, it, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to see through, if that makes sense. Like 
It's just, it's not super developed. There's not a ton of woody vegetation. Um, when we look at the planted pine, it's a little bit more developed, right? The, the age of the stands are younger. So on average, it's about 20 to 25 years of age. Um, they're rotated kind of like how you would do for timber production. Um, and they have a more developed understory, but they also use prescribed fire in these stands as well. The third cover type are, are hardwoods. This is not what you generally think of when you think of hardwoods. I, I do a little bit of research here in Alabama in a hardwood site. And generally speaking, it's a closed canopy and the understories can pretty much bare. There's very little forage, very little cover. Um, you think of an area that probably wouldn't support deer very well. Um, this is not the case. This is more of a developed understory. So there's a, a lot of cover. It's an area that you can think of as a hunter. If you were to walk through, you'd probably make a lot of noise. You'd be catching things. You'd be catching limbs. There's a lot of vines, a lot of brambles. It's just more developed, uh, a lot of cover, a lot of concealment cover for deer. And the fourth one are going to be food plots. Uh, food plots, you know, they're planted in various clovers, grains. It's just typical what you would see in the southeast here for a food plot. As far as how it goes in the landscape, those natural pine areas, they account for 60% of the landscape. The planted pines, 19%. The hardwoods, roughly 10%. And the food plots, about 6%. Yeah, the, that hardwood drain threw me off as well when I, when I was reading your... Uh your article, I was surprised because I'm, I'm envisioning, you know, what I see a lot around here, these streamside management zones, um, kind of between planted pine stands. A lot of times, exactly like you said there, they're, they're, you know, mature oaks, hickories, you know, poplars, and with just a wide open understory. Um, so you guys were looking at something very different then there as far as those drainages go. Yeah. Brian, if you've spent much time in, lower coastal plain areas, um, you know that there's a lot of relatively shade tolerant understory and midstory species that grow up in hardwoods there. Um, so these are, even though they're quote unquote hardwood bottoms, they're really, you know, kind of flats. So these are, you know, kind of flat, soggy areas. There's a lot of vines, like Dylan said, there's, you know, palmetto growing up in there. There's wax myrtle um switch cane you know all sorts of vegetation even though it's not a really high sunlight environment so these are these are areas that you'd have to fight your way through yeah now was there uh, i'm guessing i'm not familiar necessarily with the south carolina coastal plain but but based on what i know from georgia here i assume it's going to be very similar as far as topography very limited topography then as well that's right yeah and then the uh like dylan said the pines were old, you know, they were, they've been, they've been thin several times. So, you know, you're looking at what I think the description that most people can relate to is typical like quail woods. Yeah. Okay. So let's look a little bit at, I guess, start diving into some, some deer behavior then what out of those habitat types, what, what habitat did you find the deer preferred to, to spend the day in or to, or to bed in? I don't know if you got specifically looked at, at bedding, but um, where, where did these deer like to spend their time, I guess? So generally speaking, we didn't look at exactly where they bedded. We looked at where they selected for as it pertained to their home range. So where are they using? And we separated it out by day and night, which is really the first covariate, the first um, thing we really wanted to look at, because you can imagine if you were to group that all together night and day, it could wash your effect. And so we separated out day versus night and we looked at that. And so, you know, the time period you're speaking to the day period, what we really found is that all deer were generally avoiding food plots and they were selecting for, or had a greater probability of selecting for hardwood drains out of all their cover types. Um, but more so what we found for bucks than for does, they were, they were avoiding the food plots more than does were, and they were selecting more so for hardwoods than does were. And this was actually one of our uh, most interesting findings is that we did see the sex specific difference between does and bucks in their selection. It seemed like bucks were avoiding these high risk areas more so than does, and then utilizing these areas of refuge more so than does work. Now, were there, were there, and maybe I don't know that you looked at it at this scale, but were there those daytime areas that, that these individual deer were, were selecting for, were they consistent day to day or, you know, did they, did they tend to, to kind of move around, you know, different to different areas or uh, just, just how, I guess, how consistent was their, yeah, that's, was their behavior and their movement? Yeah, that's a, that's a, Good question to bring up. That's something that I've actually looked at for fun on the side. It didn't really have to pertain to this project, but it is something as a hunter, you know, you're interested in like, you know, if I, if I find where this one buck's at, can I go back there, you know, and, and try to harvest him? Will he use the same sites? And generally speaking, whenever I looked at a few select bucks, they generally use the same area. They had very similar trends. They kind of went back to this area of refuge. 
And part of that could be just a study site. And it's one thing that Will and I haven't really dove into is where the hunting pressure was at. And we can kind of talk about that, I guess, more in a little bit. But really, it kind of pertained to these areas of refuge. They didn't, they weren't all over the landscape. They were really in like these certain areas. And so these deer came back to those same areas, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And to to put some, put some numbers on that. So like bucks during the day, there is, you know, we're dealing in probabilities here and these probabilities don't sum to a hundred because they're, they're, you're calculated independently for each, for each, uh, sex and time period. So like during the day, bucks, um, had an 80% probability of selection for hardwood drains and less than a 40% chance of selecting for food plots. Whereas does had about a 60% probability of selection of hardwoods during the day and a 55% probability of selection for food plots. Okay. So, so they both, they both generally select for hardwoods during the day and food plots more so at night. But we basically saw a simple way to think about it is bucks were more likely to avoid food plots during the day than does were. And why do you think that is? Why, why, you know, you're going, you're talking about earlier how that, that mature doe you would think is, is just as wise as that buck. Why do you think the, the does were selecting more for food plots than, than the bucks? Dylan, you want to take that? Yeah, yeah, I can speak to that. Generally, um, in our manuscript and kind of what we spoke about is sexual segregation. And we kind of spoke to how morphologically does and bucks have different body sizes, right? So generally speaking, does are smaller than bucks. Basically, how this works out is is that does have to persist on a higher quality forage because they have a smaller body size. They generally speaking have a smaller rumen size, and so they have a faster passage rate. Versus, you know, you can imagine bucks; they have a bigger body size, a bigger rumen. They're able to draw more nutrients from the forage that they're eating. So females are more, or or does are more dependent on these high quality forages. Another compounding factor too is that some of these does on the study side are still lactating. And we all know that even though it may not be a huge nutritional draw during that time period, they're still recovering from when they were at peak lactation and their their bodies may still need this high uh, quality forage. And so they're more likely to take on this risk to gain those forages versus bucks maybe be able to persist off off the forages, perhaps in some of those areas during the day, like say in the hardwoods, they could go forage on some of those, like make these small little trips around forage on some of those and then sit down and ruminate some more versus those does really need to get the highest quality forage. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, it really, you know, this, these findings to me give me even more respect for the animal than, you know, I had previously because like I was talking to Mark Turner about this yesterday and, you know, he's some of the work that he's doing up at University of Tennessee. He's looking at energetic demands and how much energy is provided in forage on some of his study areas. And during his lit review, preparing for that, he um, came across some information that, you know, we think of we think of both antler growth and we think of lactation as really expensive metabolic processes for deer. Right. And antler growth is you know, they need about one and a half times, they have, they have like a one and a half time increase in their energy demand during antler growth, but does um, increase by about four and a half times at peak lactation. I didn't realize the gap would be that big, but it is. And even though, you know, we're talking about going on into fall where fawns are, you know, much more weaned, they're only nursing occasionally. So the demand isn't as great we can still appreciate that it's pretty high. And so what this boils down to, and you can see it, you know, as a hunter in doe behavior, when they step out into a food plot, when it's, when it's still shooting light, you can tell they, they know something's there. They know something's going on. It's not like they're blind to that risk, but it's their physiology. It's their biological imperative that drives them to go out and seek that high quality forage anyway. So I don't know that it just gives me an appreciation for the animal that, you know, they're willing to expose themselves to that risk, not only to ensure, you know, a high nutritional, a high nutrition diet for their fawns that are currently at heel, but then also, you know, they got to think about future reproductive efforts as well. Yeah. That man, that is, that, that's interesting. Yeah. They, they never cease to amaze me. Um, just, yeah. just the way they can, you know, they, they know to select, 
certain plants or certain parts of plants and, and just uh, to get the nutrients that, that they need. So, right. Did you, did you look at the, I guess, food plot usage or the, the different cover type usages by, or usage by age at all? I mean, were, were these, uh, younger does, younger bucks more likely to, to come out into these food plots during daylight hours versus, uh, an older, older deer. We didn't look that closely at the data set as far as age goes. Um, we were more interested in generally looking at uh, seasonality, so pre-rut, rut, post-rut, how that plays in effect, time of day, day and night, and then cover type across those different sexes. So um, by that time, we had pretty much run a pretty thorough analysis on a lot of different variables, and so we didn't, we didn't look at the age structure. We just pretty much lumped some of them and then took a, a general average age for the group okay. of deer. Right. Yeah, and I mean, so... I mean, the average, like I said earlier, the average age of bucks was three and the average age of does was four. And, you know, since we had over 50 animals in each of those groups, um, you know, that's that average is pretty representative of the typical age of the animal in those in each of those categories. Gotcha. Now, you mentioned there the different uh, you looked at it by the different time periods, basically, of, of the season there. The I guess talk about that, how how these deer. Uh, where they spent their time in relation to, like you said, pre-rut, rut, post-rut. Yeah, yeah, I'll speak a little bit to that. Um, we did look at it and seasonality, so that pre-rut, rut, post-rut did play a significant factor. It was a, a significant predictor. But when we really broke it down, there were these trends, um, but they were very consistent throughout all the periods. For instance, like you didn't see a huge switch where, you know, bucks were utilizing you know, say hardwoods or had a probability of use, utilizing hardwoods more so than food plots during the pre-rut and then post-rut, they were dumb and they all of a sudden started using the food plots like crazy looking for does. It was really consistent. They can, you know, all deer pretty much held this trend. It may have changed a little bit between seasons, but it really held where they, they had this consistent use or had a greater probability of utilizing these areas like hardwoods and also planted pines compared to these open cover types like food plots and natural pines. And so this, this, you know, it changed a little bit between seasons, but really there wasn't a drastic effect. Okay. So even, even post rut after being wore down and needing to kind of re- replenish those resources, they still didn't uh, seem to select higher for, for food plots then no, during the I, I think it daylight. just comes to the fact that they, if they, you know, they need to survive, you know what I mean? Whatever it comes between, right. you know, persisting for a little while to like survive to the next year, they're going to do that, you know, and they're, it's ingrained to survive. And so, you know, like we spoke about, they're only going to use these areas of high risk if they absolutely have to, um, for the most part, or, or their probability of use, utilizing is going to be less whenever they can feel that pressure. And so generally speaking, even post rut, you know, we expected there might be some change, some drastic changes, but there really wasn't. These deer really were looking to survive. You know, this was about getting away from that hunting pressure. So Dylan, we've talked a lot about risk already. Um, but I don't think we've done a good job of explaining how we kind of got at that. Yeah, um, I, I was just going to try to tie that in. So yeah, right. go ahead, take it. Go ahead. Sorry, Rob, I didn't mean to your <laughs> no, no, you're you're right on cue there. <laughs> but Dylan, you want to talk a little bit about how the property is hunted and what the stand locations were like and the composition around them? Yeah, for sure. This was, and I kind of spoke to a little bit earlier that we talk about it later. And so it's a great point to talk about it, but. This is a very, very unique property, right? So like a lot of studies that look at risk, you know, they generally give hunters some type of GPS device and they have them track their movements because how do you know where hunters really hunted? How do you know how much pressure they had if you don't know where those hunters are? Well, for this study site, you know, we're really lucky in the fact that, you know, it's a little bit different. They generally guides transport these hunters to fixed stand locations and these fixed stands don't move much at all. So they're pretty much centered over food plots or over roads. Um, and so we know where the hunting pressure is, um, and then we can deduce what cover types deer are susceptible to hunters. And so a graduate student, you know, he went through and, and he used a laser range finder and he was able to determine within a hundred meter, meter radius, what cover types deer were susceptible to that hunter. Um, and whenever we, I analyzed that data and what I found is that, you know, whenever we looked in these areas of vulnerability, if you will, food plots were overrepresented. There were four times uh, there's a four times greater proportion of food plots in those areas of vulnerability compared to what was available on the landscape. Additionally, hardwoods were underrepresented. There was nearly half of the proportion of hardwoods within those cones of, uh, within those areas of vulnerability compared to what was available on the landscape. Natural pine, you know, there was about 60% of the landscape and there was roughly 60% in those areas of vulnerability. And then planted pines were also underrepresented in the fact that there was 19% proportion of, of planted pines in the landscape 
but there was only about 11%-ish within those areas of vulnerability. Now, what that means whenever we look at that is that compared to what's available in the landscape, one, they're selecting these stands in areas that are more open, but number two, they're also thicker and harder to see through. You know, there's more concealment cover within some of those cover types. And those ones that really stood out from that proportional review are going to be hardwoods and planted pines, more so hardwoods and planted pines, but definitely planted pines as well. Versus food plots, as you can imagine, it's extremely easy to see through. And so generally speaking, whenever they went to look at how, how easily a deer can be seen in that cover type within those areas of vulnerability, they were very easy to see. And so that, that cover type, you know, had the highest or the greatest proportion within those areas of vulnerability. So we kind of use that and extrapolate it to basically create a metric of where a deer would feel safe, what cover types deer would feel safe in, and what cover types those deer might feel at risk. And as you can imagine from those numbers I just gave you, we really feel like deer would feel least safer or feel most at risk in game, in, uh, in food plots, and then next in natural pines, and then the least in hardwoods, and also less so in planted pines. And so that's kind of how we got to the question of what cover types do deer feel risk in was basically deducing what cover types deer susceptible to hunters around those fixed stand locations. Yeah, so <laughs> it's, it really paints a pretty clear picture when you think about it that not only were stand locations biased toward food plots in these more open areas, so that's where all the hunting pressure is, but deer are more visible there. I mean, that's probably why they're biased there, right? right. So. And on the opposite end of that spectrum, you have these dense planted pine stands that haven't been thinned yet. You've got these hardwoods that we've described earlier that offer a lot of cover for deer. And those areas aren't being hunted. So, I mean, it's, it's intuitive that that would be where the deer hang out during the daytime, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No No surprise there, I guess. People, you know, hunters want to want to be able to see, you know, they want to be able to Absolutely. see long distances and uh you know they like like watching those food sources so absolutely yeah so i guess it's not so much that the deer are selecting for thick cover right. as it is they're just selecting for unhunted areas i mean is that that kind of what exactly, it boils down to that's exactly what we're trying to get at right so like it's easy to look at this research and go you know, if you're a deer hunter, I'm going to the hardwoods, you know, <laughs> the first thing when right. I ran this data is like, you know, the hardwoods sound good. You know, I've always heard, you know, go to the hardwoods. That's where the big bucks are or whatever. You know what I mean? They're over there eating acorns, go to the, the hardwoods. But in this situation, it doesn't mean you shouldn't hunt a particular cover type that showed greater selection, but it really comes down to pressure in this situation, right? So these, these hunter, these deer are more susceptible to these areas, such as, um, such as food plots and, and le to a lesser extent, natural pines. And they were really just moving into the two cover types where they weren't susceptible. They were moving into the planted pines and even more so into the hardwoods. And so for us, whenever you look at this data and how we kind of interpret it is it's really about risk. Like risk is a greater predictor or the risk perception is a greater predictor than cover type alone. And it's less of like this miracle cover type. I'm not, we're not telling, you know, hunters go out there and plant your entire property or, or you know, forest it all in hardwoods because all of a sudden you're going to have a ton more deer. This isn't about that. You know, this is more about pressure. Where were those stands located? Where did those deer feel at risk? And so, you know, that's basically the root of, of the research, I, I feel like. Now, what kind of pressure did this area see overall? You, you mentioned that it was a kind of a corporate hunting retreat type thing. Is this something that was used pretty frequently? I mean, received a good bit of pressure or was it pretty limited overall? It did receive a good amount of pressure, but it's generally classified as low. The reason for that is that even though these people are, you know, these uh, corporate people are taken out to these different stands. They do rotate these stands, which is a, a really important thing to consider is that they do rotate the pressure on each of these stands. So overall, we do consider the pressure to be somewhat low or at least representative, representative of like a lot of the regular places here in this or many places here in the Southeast. Overall, it was low. It, it wasn't over overly hunted. Now, I don't know, this may not be something that, that you guys looked at or, or by based on when you were actually collecting the data it may not may not apply but i was just could you tell like how quickly these deer reacted to that hunting pressure i mean was there did you see any difference maybe when you first start collecting data early in the season versus you know what they were selecting right after the season started you know how how quickly they responded to to people suddenly showing up out there and and deer hunting yeah, unfortunately, the core of our data was right around that pre-rut, rut, post-rut period, which is right during the hunting season. So unfortunately, we wouldn't really have the data to make predictions or to really see anything outside of that time period. 
you know, callers were put on at different times. You can imagine they call our deer at different times and they started producing, you know, GPS coordinates early on, but there just wasn't a rich enough data set to really analyze that kind of thing. We really, the earliest we have is really that pre-rut period, which you, you know, you can think, you know, a logical thought process would be maybe that even at that time period, they're showing um, maybe less aversion to these food plots during the pre-rut and maybe it increases during the rut and post-rut whenever, you know, there's more hunters in the landscape. But really, there was not much of a difference. These deer were wired, it seems like, to avoid risk all the way from the pre-rut all the way to the post-rut. Okay, yeah. Now, as far as movement, I guess, you know, you hear or I've heard, you know, my whole life, deer move most at dusk and dawn. You know, that that's the, the peak of deer movement. Um, it, did your data reflect that? What did you see, I guess, as far as, as movement and, and timing of the day, I guess? Yeah, a lot of um, a lot of analyses look at exactly where that distribution occurs, and you're absolutely right. It's really crepuscular. I mean, it's right around the morning, right around the night. And I did look at that just for fun, and it ha- it's the exact same way on this study site. Um, that wasn't really a core question or gen X. I feel like that was pretty ingrained in the literature. That this is what they do. Um, really, what we wanted to look at is you know the cover type selection in each one of those two periods. You know, day versus night, um, and you know I, I don't know if Will wants to speak to this more so, but we had some really interesting findings in movement too during those two time periods. Yeah. And to, and to kind of add to that, Brian, I think it's important for everybody to keep in mind that um, not just in this study, but in, in one after the other that have been conducted uh, using this GPS technology throughout the whitetails range, you know, the first, the primary factor that's going to affect deer movement is time of day. They're just going to move more at dawn and dusk. And then the next most important factor is where we are in terms of the rut right? Greatest movement rates are going to be during the rut. So everything else beyond that is just a a tertiary or a lower tier factor. You always got to keep those things in mind that those first two factors, time of day and where we are in terms of the rut are going to drive, you know, like 80, 90% of the variation in deer movement rates and deer activity. And then everything else, you know, kind of takes bits and pieces of that remaining portion of the variation here and there. And, and to add just a little bit to that, too, the only other factor I can think of that would influence it would be what apex predators in the system. So, like, there has been some great research here in the southeast where, you know, in areas such as Florida, where they have like the black panther, that deer will change their habits, their uses to like become more diurnal versus like in areas where humans are the predominant hunter it's more so in that crepuscular period or they, they switch their timing tonight. So in this system where we didn't have an apex predator, such as the black Panther, it's. You mean the Florida Panther, Dylan? Sorry. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Don't, don't, don't get the black Panther thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that definitely, that definitely changes things. And yeah, deer will respond to the specific hunting strategy that the predator that is most responsible for their mortality employs. Um, you know, so in this case it was hunters. Yeah. But Dylan, you want to speak some to, um, the movement rates and the different cover types and what we found regarding that? Yeah. Yeah. So the movement rates are quite interesting. Um, the first thing that really stood out is that deer moved or had a greater rate of movement in food plots during the day than all of their cover types. Right. And so the first thing we looked at, you're like, why are they moving faster? Are they running around these food plots? And it's not the case. What's happening is they're really out there on those food plots during the night, right? And then they almost like have this biological timer in their head where they're feeling that risk increase. I kind of like think of it as the sun's starting to come up and you, you know, in their head, it's like tick, 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 until it's just too risky to stay out there. And they move quickly off those food plots. And so we really capture that, especially in the morning period where they move quickly off these, these food plots, or even sometimes they move quickly through the food plots. So I, I have an animation that I've shown a couple of times where uh, this, this buck actually moves quickly off the food plot, wants to get a bite. So he hits the food plot again, goes through it, comes back through it again, comes back through it one more time. And then he shoots <laughs> off to his area of cover. And I've actually seen this in the field myself where I was sitting a food plot hunting. I had seven does walk out. They're out there feeding, you know, just in kind of like not, they're pretty relaxed. They weren't too scared. And then all of a sudden this buck came through, you know, I barely saw him. He jetted through the food plot took off, came back, jetted through it again, and then I never saw him again. And it's, it's, just, uh, it's just something that we actually could see in the data, which was really, really interesting that it seems like these, you know, all deer, but definitely bucks in particular, move off of these food plots quickly during the day. 
and then their their rate of movement decreases once they get to these areas of refuge. So, for instance, you know the area of refuge more so than any other recovery type on our property where the hardwood drains. In the hardwood drains, all deer had their lowest rate of movement, but in particular bucks. Bucks had a really, really low rate of movement. And a way of thinking about this, and you can see this whenever you really animate the data, is that this buck moves quickly through over to this area of refuge and then kind of just putts around here and there, you know, and we we listened to Aaron speak about this, you know, and he he nailed this. He basically said, you know, I'll sit in an area where I know the deer are at. They're not going to move much. You know, this buck's not going to move much, but I'm going to wait all day to try to, you know, catch this one time to get him. And that's exactly what we're seeing, basically. So this, this buck is heading over to this area, kind of like bedding down, and then he gets up here and there to forage a little bit, right? Gets a bite to eat here or there. He's still safe, beds back down, gets up again, and does the same thing. But on average, this rate of movement is much, much less than, say, in the food plot where they moved off it quickly if that makes sense. And that really pertains to hunters, um, you know, speaking to Aaron and, and other hunters out there, you know, it's, it's really about this finding this area where they're going to bed up and then you have to be patient. You know, you might have, it might take all day. It's not the most fun hunting. You may be out there seeing nothing for a very long period of time, but you may get that opportunity to see that buck get up and, and get your chance. Yeah. yeah so, so, sorry, Brian. I was just going to say to put some numbers on that during the day, um, we saw that bucks would move about a hundred yards an hour in the hardwoods. Whereas during the day when they were in and around the food plots, they were moving at a rate of about 300 yards per hour. Okay. So three fold faster movement. And, and that movement in the hardwoods, like Dylan said, was, it was sporadic, you know, and periodic. So it was, you know, they bed down for a little while, they'd get up, move around and bed back down. Right. So, so yeah, moving faster through those open areas, but spending less time there overall. So, right. Gotcha. And then, also that that's interesting as, as well about the 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 movements during daytime in these in these thicker areas these hardwood drains i mean the deer are obviously they're, they're not they're not quote unquote nocturnal they're not getting in there and just staying and and not getting up from their bed you know right. from dark till dark the, these deer are moving around periodically during during the day in these areas yeah right i mean that's what you, you know you think about the biology of the animal and deer ruminants ruminants in general are prey species and the great thing you know from a from a survival perspective is that they have this large rumen which is basically a storage vat for food right so they their their strategy a lot of times is to go out and have these intense what we refer to as foraging bouts to fill that rumen up and then to go back into hiding cover and let it digest and so you know that's what they're doing pretty much they're going out dawn and dusk sometimes during the night filling up and going back and laying down. Now, you know, they get up to stretch, especially during the rut, they'll get up and move around to check those, you know, and things like that. And it makes them more vulnerable. Um, but overall, that's their strategy. Taking all the, the data you analyzed into account, I guess, what are some take home, take home messages, I guess, for deer hunters, uh, specifically how they could increase the likelihood of an encounter, you know, with one of these these bucks during daylight hours and you, and you touched on that a little bit, but any other take homes there, I guess. Yeah. I'd love to give some summary on it. Um, there's a few things and I, I kind of spoke to this in a presentation I gave last year, but, or in the beginning of this year, actually, but really there's a few things. One, it doesn't mean don't hunt the food plots, right? So you can absolutely hunt your food plot, but if you're going to, what we advise is one, maybe reduce their risk perception. So maybe rotate food plots or just don't apply as much pressure to that food plot or whatever it is, just try to reduce that risk. Number two, if you do see your target animal, say a big buck out there in that food plot, take your shot, right? Because <laughs> there's a good chance <laughs> yeah. he's going to move off, right? If, if it just hit daybreak and you see that buck out there, there's a great chance he's going to leave. So be prepared for that and take your opportunity. One thing that I would like to note also is that these stands, as I mentioned, were rotated. So hunting areas that are of low to no risk on the property may be a better practice than hunting even these areas where you rotate your stands on a, you know, from food plot to food plot. Just one thing to keep in mind. The next thing I would advise too is, you know, which is really the summary of our entire uh, paper and really the summary of this entire podcast is hunt areas of low risk. You know, Aaron talked about that. He literally talked about diving into areas that no one else had gone. And he said he would actively look for people's foot tracks, which I thought was super, super cool. You know, I, I would 100% say that's a great practice to employ. Look for areas that you can imagine weren't hunted or aren't hunted almost at all, because there's a great chance those deer are going to use those as areas of refuge. If you do decide to hunt those areas, I would highly suggest that you sit for a long period of time. You know, he spoke about sitting all day. 
I know most hunters probably don't want to sit a stand the entire day, but <laughs> I would definitely carve out a good chunk of time that you're willing to sit there because those movements are going to be a lot slower, right? I mean, not really necessarily slower, but they're going to be less movement. So you're going to expect that those deer are only going to move up to um, have those foraging bouts here and there. The next thing, and this is kind of what Will and I spoke to in our article, is that you can kind of find these areas in between their areas of refuge and these areas where they're foraging at night. If the property is like that, if it has those two specific areas where you know there's an area of refuge, maybe it's too dense to get into, maybe you're too loud to get into it, whatever. And then you have this area of, of great forage, like say a food plot. If you can find an area in the middle, perhaps you might be able to cut off those animals. For instance, a bottleneck would be a great place if you can see like where the mountains kind of slope together. Um, it can even just be an area you've seen a ton of, you know, a ton of these deer tracks going through and you know they're coming through this area. Whenever you looked closer to our data, what we basically found is that deer would move through these, you know, relatively open cover types on their way to the refuge. So, um, and we kind of, you know, showed that in our quality whitetails article where there's these areas where you might be able to target, say there's like a strip of natural pine in between the hardwoods and the food plots. The deer may take their time coming through that area, feeling a little more safe. And that's still an open area where you might be able to harvest that animal. And so finding these bottlenecks or finding these intercept points can be also really important to try to harvest an animal this hunting season. Yeah. I mean, you know, like Dylan said, this doesn't mean don't hunt food plots. I mean, I certainly am familiar with properties where they leave food plots completely undisturbed until they've patterned a mature buck using that, that food plot. And then they'll go in when everything is perfect and hunt that buck and kill them in the food plot as possible. But this also, you know, reiterates to me the importance of minimizing disturbance on, you know, your entry and your exit if you are going to hunt a food plot. Because if you don't shoot and the wind was right when you hunted it and you don't bump deer coming in or coming out, you're going to the deer are never going to know you were there. So they're not going to perceive that area as being as risky, you know, as they would if you run 10 deer out of a field every time you get down. Right. But even still, like like Dylan said, these data really reiterated to me that strategy that a lot of us are familiar with that deer, you know, come from food back to bedding in the morning and then at night they come, they travel from bedding to food. We, I mean, that trend was so powerful and so obvious in this data set. And it, like Dylan said, if you can look across a property and find those areas that are important for foraging and the ones that are important for bedding and concealment. And you set up between those and, you know, run your cameras there and find out, you know, try to hone in on where those those bucks are traveling through. Then that's going to maximize your probability of success. And we didn't. One other thing to point out is we didn't always see the same buck using the same travel path between food plots and cover. They oftentimes I think, Dylan, they you know, the few bucks we pulled out and looked at that way, they had maybe two or three primary paths that they took. Yeah, that's correct. So, you know, it's not guaranteed and everybody knows that, you know, even if you find a funnel that a buck travels through, sometimes they don't do it every day. You know, if you can sit those with the right wind enough times, you're going to maximize your likelihood of encountering that deer. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've experienced some of that as far as the, the hunting pressure on, uh, you know, I hunt a lot of public land here in Georgia. Uh, and of course I, I listen to the podcast and watch the, you know, the hunting public and those different guys and, you know, where the message is always, you know, get, get in there deep, get away from the crowd, you know, hunt, hunt the thick stuff. And, and that certainly like we've talked about here today can, can be, um, it, it can help you be successful. But I also, you know, one of the WMAs I hunt here in Georgia, it's a fairly large, you know, over 7,000 acres and gets very little, uh, bow hunting pressure at the beginning of the season. I mean, I rarely see anybody out there. And so, you don't necessarily have to employ that strategy there, you know, at least, at least not early on before they get into some of the gun hunts and stuff. Right. Um, I ended up killing a, a good buck off of it last year. And, you know, I probably wasn't 300 yards from the, the parking area and I, I was hunting somewhat thick cover, but not nothing, you know, super thick or nasty. You know, once you were up in the tree, um, you had a, a pretty good view for a ways, but, uh, yeah, it does. It, like you said, it, it's all relative, I guess, to, to the pressure. Um, you know, you can't just, there's not a one, one size fits all uh, recipe for, for finding these deer or, or, you know, being able to kill these deer in certain location. Sure. And that, that's Would, probably one thing to add too that we spoke about earlier too is, yeah, we're taking the average of what's happening. You know what I mean? We're really showing these trends of on a large scale what deer are doing. But 
you know, deer is so different. You know, one buck may do something, another one may do another thing. If you're targeting one animal, you know, him lining up directly with every trend that you see in the literature is unlikely. You know what I mean? You're really going to have to go pattern that him yourself. You may have these tools that will make you more successful, but you're going to have to figure out that, that particular buck. If he's doing something different, you know, maybe just like, you know, Will spoke about, he may be taking three, four or five different paths back to that area of refuge, or it could be one that's just very, very familiar with a certain area. And he's just taking the same path. It, it doesn't always have to be based on that property. It could just be that one individual is doing something different. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a great point. They are, they're individuals just like us, you know, they have different, uh, I guess, different preferences and a different way of going about things. One, one thing I, I forgot to ask, I meant to ask you earlier in this, did you look at core area size of these deer or home range size, that kind of stuff? So part of the analysis we did is where we look at what's available within the home range. So we did run an analysis that created a home range for each one of these deer. But no, we didn't generally speaking deduce like how big that core area was or how big. That's been done a lot. And it's a, it's a great technique for, for looking at some of these things. But the function that we used, we felt like was a better fit to what we were trying to get at. So we didn't, we don't have those numbers now. We don't have the exact core area size and the exact, you know, home range size. Okay. That's no problem. I'm curious, would, would you, I know this isn't uh, specifically probably part of your research, but as a hunter, would you consider any of the deer on this study unkillable based on, you know, what, what you saw with their movements and stuff or, or any of them just, you know, ghosts that, that you weren't going to catch out in one of these open areas during, during daylight hours? Yeah, it was probably one of the deer that left the study site. <laughs> <'Cause it's laughs> yeah. <longer> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I don't think in particular any deer is unkillable i mean unless there really is no reason the deer is unkillable it's just they may be ridiculously hard to kill it may also come down to the fact that you just you know if you're going into this area where they're you know say you're hunting this hardwood drain where you know this buck is always at you may bump him and he may have some type of response that leaves the area entirely and then you're kind of back to square one um but generally speaking there's there was no deer in the study that i would say is unkillable it just really comes down to how much time you're willing to put into it how much effort you're willing to put into it. And, you know, just like kind of Will spoke about, you know, are you willing to put out a trail camera or are you willing to put out 20 trail cameras? You know what I mean? Are you willing to really, are you willing to spend a week looking for this deer? Or are you willing to spend the entire preseason? And, you know, Aaron kind of got at that too. He's, a, he's like, you know, the best thing we have is scouting these areas. You know what I mean? And that's, I don't think any of these deer are unkillable. It just comes down to how much effort you're willing to put into it. Just like most anything in life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm certain that, some of them, like Dylan said, would be more difficult to kill than others, but we were more looking at the population level response. And although we, we pulled out a few deer just to have, you know, some examples, some demonstrations of what they go through on a daily basis, we didn't break down each deer's movements and see if they were somewhere where you could get a shot at them during the daytime. Um, but like you, I'm Brian, I'm sure you've, you know, run tons of trail cameras and seen that it's just sometimes impossible to get a buck on camera during daylight hours with certain bucks. Oh yeah. That's def definitely true. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> any, uh, you know, we talked about some takeaways there for, uh, for deer hunters, uh, any takeaways, I guess, for maybe a land manager that may be listening. It seems like what your data would lend itself to, um, maybe the, the idea of sanctuaries on a property, you know, areas with very limited or no hunting pressure whatsoever. Yeah, I, I definitely would. Um, one of the things, you know, when I work with landowners, I look to see, you know, what are these areas that offer high visual obstruction is what we typically refer to because that's how we measure the density of vegetation, quality of the cover that it provides. How are they distributed across the property? Um, and what, you know, is the total acreage in that in that vegetation type or types. And if there's not enough of it, I like to use management actions to increase the amount and the interspersion or the distribution of those types of areas across the property. And then more importantly, like one of the, one of the best opportunities you have to set yourself up for hunting success when you do that is to try to establish any areas that you're going to manage for high quality forage during the hunting season, whether that be a food plot or, you know, native uh, vegetation in a forested area where you're thinning and applying some prescribed fire, something like that, set it up. So there's a relatively easy ambush point between those two that also accounts for wind direction, the prevailing wind direction during the hunting season. Yeah, that makes sense. 
I don't know how many times I've seen, you know, people on social media asking, you know, they, they've planted that food plot or maybe they're putting out feed or whatever the case may be. And, and they just can't get that deer to show up during daylight hours. And, you know, it always goes back to, you know, you ask them, well, what kind of cover do you have right there? And, and it, it just seems some people get so focused on the food and not yeah. the cover. Right. And, um, you yeah. know, the, and okay. honestly, before this study, I was kind of, I've gotten to where I appreciate the value of quality hiding cover for deer in the Southeast more and more. I used to dismiss it as there's cover everywhere. All we are is cover. But, you know, this clearly, the study clearly shows that deer don't view all those areas equally. And it's not just the density of the vegetation area, but like Dylan said, it's also how those areas are hunted, how much hunting pressure they receive as well so yeah all right anything yeah just to follow one more thing too you know kind of speaking to what will's talking about too is is even if you have incredible cover there's been some studies that show that whenever you apply all the pressure all the hunting pressure to those areas of refuge you can change those deer's behavior those deer behavior where they then leave those areas of cover so so it is just like you spoke to you know you want this concealment cover but you also got to limit that pressure even in those areas of refuge because they will leave, you know, they may leave those areas of refuge or change their patterns and you have to repattern them again. So it's, it's definitely this interaction between the two, between, you know, having concealment cover and reducing the pressure in those areas of refuge. Right. right. Anything, I guess here that we, uh, we haven't touched on that any questions I, I didn't ask that I should have that, that might, uh, I guess help us. One more thing. Yeah. One more thing I remember, Brian, um, I meant to make this point with my last statement, but it slipped my mind. But, you know, I think this also shows the value in setting up some of these, what people typically refer to as ambush plots between your large food plots or other, other foraging areas, if that's, you know, managed forest and the areas that, you know, that deer are using for cover is basically an ambush plot or an intercept plot. I've seen this successfully employed in practice where um, you have these gnome large nutrition plots that deer are coming to after legal shooting hours are over and you know where the deer are coming from to those plots. And so you set up like a, you know, a quarter acre or a half acre plot between those two and, you know, ambush the deer there. Just basically get them to stop over and bide their time until they go out to the larger plot because they feel relatively safe in that small food plot and close to cover because it's, because it is, you know, relatively small. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Anything else on your end, Dylan, that uh, that we missed, or anything else you'd like to? No, I don't think mention so. about the research. No, I think we uh, I think we covered it quite thoroughly. Um, hopefully, we'll have this research available to everyone to read in a published format. You know, we have it into a journal now for submission, so hopefully, we'll have that out there and anyone can read this. But if you want to read a little bit more about what we spoke about here, you know, check out that that article by Quality Whitetails. It should give a little more information on what we talked talked about here and give you some visual too as to you know some of the things we we're speaking to. So. I think that's all I got on it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That'll be in the uh, the fall issue, which uh, uh, depend on when this this episode actually airs. But by the time uh, they hear this, it should be hitting mailboxes. So, um, and if so, if if you're not a member of of the National Deer Association, uh, you got time get get signed up. And you can still get that issue. But uh, guys, I I, I can't uh, uh, tell you how much I appreciate you coming on, taking your time out to to talk to me here today. Uh, man, I always enjoy, like I said, hearing hearing about these types of studies and and being able to dig into them. It's uh, really interesting, and I know the the listeners are going to enjoy it as well. So, yeah, thanks just, for the invite. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Is there any place I don't know uh, where folks can kind of keep up with what you guys are doing, as far as the Auburn Deer Lab or any of that 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 you want to plug? Any social media presence or? I post um, I post some updates on ongoing research and some of those uh, those movement maps that Dylan talked about, where you could see the animated GIF of the deer moving from cover to food plot and things like that. Um, pretty often on my Instagram page, so if you want to go there, it's Doctor as in D R underscore Will underscore Goolsby, and that's G U L S B Y. Um, so I post that and other research updates there, so you can see. A lot of stuff about deer, a lot of stuff about turkeys as well, um, in general habitat management, fire, um, and even some waterfowl stuff is going to be upcoming this fall too. Good deal. Well, uh, I'll make sure to include that a link to your 
Instagram account there in the uh, in the show notes. So yeah, we have an Auburn Deer Lab page too, but it's more it's more of a static page. We don't really push the research updates out there. Okay, gotcha. All right, guys. Well, I appreciate it, and uh, be uh, looking forward to seeing seeing more stuff to come from you guys. Yeah, thank All you right. very much. Thanks, Brian. All right, guys, that wraps up our interview with Dylan Stewart and Dr. Will Goldsby. Uh, thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, and, and several more. So about anywhere you could listen to uh, listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Or you can just go to DeerAssociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the, the podcasting charts and be more visible to uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website, again, at DeerAssociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. You can become a member. And don't forget about that podcast promo code that we talked about at the beginning of the show to get you a little bit of a discount on an annual membership and that free NDA hat. So be sure to take advantage of that. And, uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.